God's word in Luke chapter 3 says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, not in Texas, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Lord, we go about a task, not just Sunday morning, but tasks throughout our week that only can be accomplished through you. Lord, would you work? Salvation is from you. Would your spirit blow afresh as we just sang? And would our love for ourselves diminish? Would it be put to death? And would our love for you grow more and more? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, this last week, millions of people on the east coast of our country had to prepare for Hurricane Florence. As the path of the storm became near and its intensity grew, they were given tips what they needed to do to be ready for the storm. They were told things like take the light objects around your yard and put them inside so they won't be thrown around and break things in the storm. Have a storm plan. Have an evacuation route. Have communications already set up with your family. Keep your car in working condition and your gas tank full. And keep your cell phone fully charged. And everyone had to be ready to prepare for this coming storm. Well, this morning, the story here in Luke transitions back from Jesus to John the Baptist. We actually haven't heard from him since chapter 1, verse 18. If you flip there, you'll notice that it says... And the child, this is talking about John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness in the two days of his public appearance to Israel. And so we haven't heard anything, but now we see that what was prophesied about him through his father Zechariah comes true. Because Zechariah prophesied in chapter 1, 76 to 77, it says, And you, child, 
will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Well, how was John going to prepare them? Well, we'll see three things. First, he gives them the announcement that he's come. And then he warns them that there's these wrong ways that they could prepare that some of them are doing. And then third, he shows them the proper way to prepare. And so here the story's transitioning and Luke marks it by noting all these various leaders. And it's been a long stretch of time since what happened before. Before we were with Jesus in the temple and now it's 18 years. That's a long time. You think about where you were 18 years ago. Some of you weren't even here. And the stories of this 12-year-old in Nazareth amazing the teachers have kind of all wandered out of people's minds. Did that really happen? And yet here comes this one, no longer in the temple, but in the wilderness, proclaiming the way of the Lord. And John is preaching a very simple message. You need to be baptized for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that can be a little bit of a hard message for us to understand. And so he explains it by quoting from various prophecies in Isaiah, some that Keith read for us earlier. And Isaiah 40 is a very pivotal chapter in Isaiah, and that's where it quotes from. If you're familiar with Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are prophecy after prophecy of judgment. But then the nation of Israel is taken into exile, and in chapter 40, verse 1 of Isaiah, there's this dramatic shift. Because then it says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. No longer are there any more prophecies of judgment. It's of God's blessings coming upon them. Because now that Israel has been punished for their sins, God is going to bless them. And so here a similar thing is done. They've been punished. They've been conquered by Rome. But now John comes in and he quotes from the words of Isaiah 40, the words of promise, the words of comfort. And he tells them, be prepared. Really what's going on is, He's a herald. You probably have seen a trumpeter, a person shouting, the king is coming, the king is coming. Well, everyone doesn't just go, okay, the king's coming, thanks for letting us know. No, they get ready. Oh, the king is coming. We need to get ourselves ready. And so what do they do? Well, he weaves these prophecies. The valleys are going to be filled up. The mountains and hills will be humbled or brought low. The crooked will be made straight. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Remember, This is an explanation of John's message. So what he's saying is not that the physical roads need to be fixed. He's saying your moral lives, they need to be made straight. Your pride needs to be brought down. That's what needs to happen. And John's very clear that this is happening because the salvation of God is coming. He says in in verse 6, the salvation of God. And then he makes clear, if you look down in verses 15 and 16, that This really isn't about him. He's preparing it. Because it says in verse 15 that all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. But then John answered them and said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's message is that the Savior has come. Now we're not given all of John in this gospel. If you turn to John chapter 1, John says even further, Behold, the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. 
And so John the Baptist is declaring this good news. And because of this good news, they should baptize, be baptized and repent. And throughout the Bible, we see this, that the good news is declared. And then because of the good news, they're told to act differently. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is Isaiah 55. And in it, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That's an interesting passage. Hey, go to Walmart and buy everything without money. Well, how can I do that? That's impossible. And that's the point. Only God can do this. And God's going to provide what you need. And there's nothing you have to do. And so there's this wonderful promise of salvation in Isaiah 55. But then it says, in verses 6 through 7 of Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon John's message is basically the same as the message has always been. God brings salvation. There's nothing we can do or add to it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare. Well, how do we prepare? Well, Scripture is abundantly clear. Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can come in His holy place? Basically, who can come before God? It goes on. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So anyone is prepared to come before God if they've been perfect. What sounds like not very good news. And yet John's here proclaiming good news. He's saying, in fact, you need to be perfect. But you know what? God has prepared you because he's made a way for you to be perfect. And because he's made that way, you should respond. You know, because you realize your sin, you realize God's justice and yet you realize His mercy. That should then motivate you, compel you to act. And thus here, John calls him to declare, I need cleansing, and how do I declare that? Well, I have to be baptized. And I need to repent. Now, repentance is an often very misunderstood idea. Literally, all it means is to change one's mind. That's what the word, if you're a very literal dictionary definition, repentance means change your mind. But it, it implies so much more than that. Because if you've had your mind changed, then your action will always change. Let me give this illustration that will hopefully help. In 2003, I was working with this camp, and we would go to various universities and do things throughout the week with the youth, and we would stay in the dorms. So one night, it was our last night there, and I was sleeping, counting those sheep, and all of a sudden... Hear this blaring in my ears. I smell this odor with my nose, and as I kind of groggily wake up and stumble into the hallway, I see the fire alarms blaring, and I see smoke, and I repented. My mind changed. I thought, you know what? There's probably a fire. And since I repented, you know what I did? I went back to bed. Well, no, that wouldn't make any sense. Since my mind had been changed, what did I do? I went out the doors. Because my mind was changed, my actions were changed. See, repentance is the changing of your mind that always leads to the changing 
of your actions. And that's what John is basically saying here. Now look, if you believe the Savior of the world has come, He's taking care of your sins, then you don't just go, oh, okay, that's great, and go along the way. No, you'll be changed. You will have repented. And that's why throughout Scripture we're told to renew our minds. Because as our minds are changed, our actions will follow. You know, really, if you think about it, repentance is the flip side of the coin of trust in God. One side is faith. One side of the coin is faith. And the other side is repentance. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If you trust in God, well, that means that before you didn't. So you've changed your mind and now you're trusting. Or if you've repented, you've stopped from trusting one thing to trusting something else. And this is not just John's message, not just the Old Testament message. This is the message throughout the Bible. Turn over one, two, sorry, two chapters. I was a math teacher. To Luke chapter 5. And look at Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Here Jesus is talking. And he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' message was a message of repentance. Or flip to the end of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24, Jesus has rose from the dead. He's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, as we call it. And he's telling them all that's happened. And then look at Luke 24, 45 through 47. Then he, being Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance... And forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus' message from the very beginning, even when he's leaving, is saying it's about repentance. It's about turning from sins. Or turn over to Acts chapter 2. The disciples really and clearly understood this. Because the first message we have of the disciples, the apostles, is in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the message from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament is that the Savior has come. Or if you're in the Old Testament, the Savior will come. And so what should you do? You should turn from sins and trust in that Savior. And thus Luke is really in the line of all these people. And so he's warning them. You need to prepare. You need to repent, in essence. But then he's going to say, look, there's some wrong ways you think you might be doing this. And that's the wrong ways to prepare. So look at verses 7 through 9 as we see the wrong ways to prepare. So they, these people are coming out. And John says to the crowd, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, John here is really showing his lack of awareness of the wisdom of 21st century church growth techniques. Because he does something that has the experts cringing in their seats. He looks out at the crowd, he sees them coming, and in essence he says, look, you're a bunch of snakes. You're just you're like your dad, who's the father of snakes. You know, I'm talking about the devil, that's right. What are you doing here? You know, John is breaking every principle of church growth. Number one, it's just like real estate. Location, location, location. If you want to have spiritual growth, you've got to be in the right spot. 
Okay, this is not the Jordan Resort. This is the wilderness. This is not like, hey, you know, as we're going to travel to that wonderful spot, we'll just drop by. This is an atmosphere that no one wants to be in. And yet, this is where John is preaching. And the second mantra of church growth is you must have the right charismatic and charming pastor. Y'all already know our church is failing on both of these. But nonetheless, as John is there, what is he? We know from the other Gospels, he's a weird dude. He wears camel's hair. He has this pre-organic diet before that was hip and cool. He's weird. What's he doing? And yet, not only that, he's, he's saying weird things. The third mantra is, look, you've got to connect with people where they are. You know, the gurus, they don't tell us to stop believing the hard topics. Yes, you need to believe those, but you need to talk about those in discipleship. When the people come, you need to meet them first, where they feel their needs are, where they are feeling the itch. That's where you as a church need to scratch. Except John is basically saying, nope, I'm just going to call them snakes. And he's doing everything wrong, but the crowds are coming. There's spiritual growth. How does this make any sense? Well, because spiritual growth only comes from the Spirit of God. Now, if we can say, if we do X, Y, and Z, and we will grow, if we can manufacture growth, that's not spiritual growth. Yes, we can look and we can see the way the Spirit of God has often worked throughout time. And we can say, yes, it would be wise to have air conditioning. It would be wise to have a good building. It would be wise if we could have a better location and all these things. But if we ever said, this is why there was growth and it does not look to the Spirit of God, then that's not true spiritual growth. And so we should pray. We should fast. We should call out to God for the desperate need for growth in our own life. We can't manufacture it in ourselves. For our church, for the city, and beyond. And we must, like John, continue to say the loving, though at times very hard truths. Yes, of course, we need to say them in the right manner, the right time. But we have to say, I'm sorry this isn't what you want to hear, but this is what you need to hear, and I love you, and so I'm going to say it. And the truth is, the problem is, it's not that we just have a few minor issues in our life. You know, when John is talking about the snakes, he's not just talking about them, he's talking about me. And he's talking about you. You know, we are the snakes. You know, in Jewish culture, a snake was a horrible thing, because who is the snake? Well, that's the deceiver, that's Satan. He's basically saying, y'all are from Satan. Well, Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said, y'all are from your father, the devil. You know, it's interesting. We can sing songs like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And people are, oh, that's wonderful. But then if you go and you put your finger on a point in their life where they might be a wretch. Ooh, no, 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 no. I just meant like that sinner thing very generically. Like, not like any actual sins in my life. I'm just like a sinner and kind of like that broad, generic I did some things in the past. But when we confess that we're sinners, when we sing songs as we just did about how we love what people say about us more than we love God, how we sing about, you know what, I love the things of this world more than God, well then it's only natural that we at times should come to one another and say, hey, 
you're doing that. And we'd go, yeah, you're right. Thank you. That, that's me. But the problem is we don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear that we do sinful, snaky things. You know, a few years ago, I read this really fascinating book called Addiction and Virtue by Kent Dunnington. And he's a Christian. And in it, he's wrestling with what is addiction and how do we overcome it? And then he's also really wrestling with why have groups like AA often been more successful than churches at overcoming, helping people overcome addictions in their life? He writes, Whereas the 12-step movement insists on treating its members as recovering addicts, the church does not always insist on treating its members as repentant sinners. You know, how would you, how would we respond if someone in our midst came up and said, you know what, I just got to be honest, I haven't read my Bible in months and I don't really want to. To be frank, I just wanted to yell at the kids all week and go in my room and be on my phone. To be honest, I'm so depressed I can barely get to work and keep the kids fed. Would we go, well, that's not really, yeah, thanks, okay, I'm going to the next person, that was weird. Or would we go, hey, I'll be honest, I got sins in my life too. Let's pray for one another. Let's care for one another. When we confess we're sinners, that means that we're going to have to confess specific sins. You know, do we realize that we do snaky, sinful things? And that we are the snakes that he's talking about. You know, Dunnington goes on, and I think he's right, for he says, of course, Many of us are not sure we want to be in a church that so trains us. For that would entail not only our humiliation, but also a vulnerability to others in which many of us have no interest. We are afraid that if we confessed our sins, other people might make claims on our lives by insisting on praying for us and asking how we're doing. Most of us are not sure we want church to be that involved. We want, as Americans, we want our privacy. We want to come and take from the church how it helps us, but not to be deeply and personally involved. Dunnington concludes, If one did not desire such vulnerability, accountability, and interdependence, what would be the benefit of attending an AA meeting? Yet many of us think something is to be gained from the church apart from learning to acknowledge our sinfulness and utter dependence on God. And so John is declaring that they are snake sinners that have to be perfect before God. But John is asking them, look, are you like a snake that when it sees the fire just merely slithers away but doesn't really want to be changed? It just wants to escape. The snake doesn't care about its nature. It just cares about its preservation. And John here deals with two wrong ways to flee. And they're really ways we still with today. And the first is those who think, you know what? You're right. I don't want to face God's wrath. So what do I got to do? Just go ahead and tell me the action I have to do, the prayer I have to pray, whatever I have to do so I can, whoo, I don't want that. And so what do they do? They just come to get baptized. Okay, I'll do that. I get baptized and I'm good. No problem. What they're wanting is some external religious action to do without wanting to be changed. They want their sin removed from the penalty, but they're very happy with its presence in their life. And yet John is telling them, no, you need something much deeper than an external new coat of paint. 
you need to be completely changed from the inside out. And then, because of that, because you've been changed, then you'll be bearing this fruit that's worthy of repentance, he says. So to bring this to today, you can't just walk an aisle, pray a prayer, get baptized, go to church, read your Bible, tithe, pray, whatever the religious deed is you want to do. You have to be changed. You have to be converted by the Spirit of God, and then due to that, bear fruit. Well, there's a second way they're wrongly responding, and that is they come to before God and they basically say, hey God, look at my identity. Look at who I am. In their case, they're saying, I'm a child of Abraham. That's who I am. And he's saying, your identity doesn't matter. You know, family connections can be really important, but they don't matter before God. One of my professors in Dallas was called to be a pastor in South Carolina, and I'll let my South Carolina friends let you know if this is true or not. But when he went, he had a businessman in Texas tell him, well, you know they do business different in South Carolina than they do in Texas. And my friend who's the pastor there said, no, I know, what, what's the difference? And they said, well, in Texas, the deal is finalized when you hear, well, how much money is involved. That will seal the deal. In South Carolina, what will seal the deal is, who is your father? And the man who's reporting this to him was saying, look, in South Carolina, what matters is family connections, relationships. In Texas, it's all about, show me the money. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. You can ask our South Carolina friends. But the point is there that many people, it's all about their identity. And even today, many people come to God and in essence say, well, look at me, God. I'm a deacon. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. Ha! I'm even better. I don't take a denominational lame. I'm more pious. And all these things they bring before God that I am this. I am. I am. And God wants to say, no. You need to know who I am, God says. You need to stop talking about what you are, your identity, and you need to focus on my identity. Salvation only comes from me, God is telling them. And in fact, he tells them, look, I could take those stones on the ground and make them children of mine. It doesn't matter. You know, we came from dust and we're going to dust. If God can take a stone and make it a child of God, if he could take dust, sorry, make a child of God, he could do it with a stone. And therefore he's telling them, he's telling us, don't trust your external actions. Don't trust your identity. Rather, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it's here that I think Christians often get really confused because they go, whoa, 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 that just sounded pretty anti-gospel. You just said, do stuff. And we know it's all about grace and faith. It's not about anything you do. So, is John really preaching the gospel? And here I think we have to realize the way this works. Let me give an illustration that might clear this up. I hope. So you've probably heard this. I've heard it many times. But in various tribal cultures around the world, they have learned a very simple way to catch monkeys. What they'll do is they'll find a gourd or something. They'll hollow it out. They'll nail it to the ground and they'll drill a hole in it small enough for the monkey to reach its hand in. And then inside they'll put fruit or something that the monkey would like. Well, the monkey comes along and realizes the items inside the gourd and it reaches in and grabs it. But now that its hands are full, 
it can't get its hands out, hand out. And given enough time, the monkey would probably realize, okay, I gotta let go and free, but they're watching. So they jump down, and before the monkey lets go, they've captured the monkey. You see, the monkey loved what it had so much in its hand that it was stuck. And John is saying, look, your hand is full of your identity. Your hand is full of your external actions, and you won't let go, and you're stuck in your sin. But what we need to do is we need to let go of our grip of what we do, who we are, and instead we need to put our grip on God. But by the nature of it, once our grip has been released in the gourd and our grip is on God, well, then the things in our hand have changed. And since those have changed, our actions have changed. We will necessarily have new ways of thinking, and the new way of thinking will always lead to new ways of action. In other way, another way of saying it, the this is the fruit of repentance. This is showing what has already happened inside of you. And so it's not about doing works to be saved. It's doing works because you have been saved. And yet John is warning them, verse 9, that this needs to happen quickly because the axe is laid to the root of the trees. The time is short, in other words. Now notice, he says they need to bear good fruit. He didn't just say, you need to make sure you don't bear bad fruit. I think a lot of people have this mindset. Okay, what I need to do is I need to stop doing all these bad things. Well, that's true. But God's call on our life is more than don't sin. God's call is to actively, aggressively, joyfully go out and do good to others. To good good to our family to our co-workers, our neighbors, to do good fruit, to do good works. And he warns them that if they won't be changed in this way, then that they and we are a dead tree that will be chopped down and thrown in the fire. And here the metaphor is not that thick. He's talking about the fire of hell that Jesus warns about over and over. That is eternal and real and described in stark terms. We never know the day we'll stand before God. I remember when I was a freshman at A&M, took biology, first semester, and went to class, and then we have a biology lab. Went to biology lab, met everyone in my little desk, cube, whatever that thing is, lab, desk, I'm not a scientist, and got to talk to them, what are y'all doing this weekend, this girl I'm going with. Aggie's over Texas, I'm going skydiving, ooh, that sounds like fun. Well, next week, before class, I saw on the school paper, plane crashes, skydivers die. Ooh, that's weird. Show up to lab, and she's not there. And I asked the TA, was she one of the ones who died? And she said, yeah. A freshman in college, had her whole life in front of her, going out to do something fun. I, I got all of my life. And I don't know where she stood before the Lord. She may have been a Christian. She may have not. But there can be this thought, I got. I can take care of that later. It's no big deal. And yet, none of us knows the day or hour when we'll have to stand. And John is saying, be prepared. Because one day, the tree will be chopped. And we are the tree. And we must be perfect 
to be before God. You know, God's standard is not better than your spouse, better than your neighbor, better than anyone else. It's 100% perfection. Now, many of us here, because we're in the military, have had to go through boot camp or something like that. And almost everyone will say, if the drill sergeant wants to, they can always find something wrong. You know, they, you can't do everything exactly 100% perfect. They can always find something that's wrong. Maybe the boots aren't completely sufficiently polished. The uniform is not precisely enough situated. The bed wasn't perfectly made. Well, God's standard is harder and more precise than any drill sergeant. And yet, John comes declaring good news, saying, Look, you're never going to get there. But God has brought his salvation. Verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, the Son of God has come to completely prepare them because they couldn't prepare themselves to completely forgive them so that they might come before God. However, to understand all this and willingly continue in sin is to show that there really has been no true repentance. Your true repentance is not fine with merely having forgiveness of sins, but not deliverance from them. True repentance is not merely regret over your actions. Repentance is turning from sin to God. You know, sadly, a lack of the understanding of this truth and a misunderstanding of what it means to be converted have really damaged the church here in the U.S. What I mean is what has happened is very well-meaning Christians who want to see people come to faith in Christ have said, you know, we need to share the bare minimum. We need to get people, as many people as we can, to trust Christ, which is a noble and wonderful goal. Except what they've done is they've shrunk the message down to, you just need to accept Jesus. Or you just need to believe in Jesus. But they never explain who Jesus is. Or what he did. Or the weight and burden of their sin. And the justice of God. And the danger of hell. There's no call to repentance. There's no warning that a lack of repentance won't lead to salvation. And yet, under this cheapened understanding of grace, this has led to vast, I put in quotes, converts. Now this isn't new, this has really been going on since the mid-1800s. But we can see it throughout church history and even in our own time. Well, back in 1954, there was one denomination, I'm not going to name it, but here in the U.S., they made a push. They wanted to add one more million people to their number, which again is a wonderful goal. We should want a million people to be saved this year. But their motto was a million more in 54. And they reached their goal. They got a million more on their rolls. However, one of the leaders in that denomination famous, famously said, if we get a million more like we did in 54, we're sunk. You know, the end result of this cheapened understanding of what it means to come to God is shallow and sadly often unreal professions of faith. You know, people think, I went forward, I prayed this prayer, I, I did this religious deed, and that man up front told me if I did this, I'd be saved. I'm good. And so they feel prepared. And yet John warns us, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In various times of my life, I've counseled parents 
whose children are now adults, and their children have, want to have nothing to do with the church, they will angrily say, I'm never going back to church. But their parents will still say to me, oh, but I remember when they were 12 and they walked forward and they were so, tears were in their eyes and they were so sorrowful. I know they're saved. And I want to say, but there's no fruit in their life today. What makes you confident? You know, the degree of your sorrow and guilt, even in the past, past is no indicator of your repentance. You know, non-Christians have felt very sorry for their sin. They felt very guilty. You know, the question is not how much regret or sorrow do you have. The question is, is there fruit from repentance in your life today? You know, I've dealt with professing Christians who are quick to take an offense. They're quick to end relationships. They're quick to anger. And when you talk to them, they have like a mental list of how they've always been sinned against. Never mind that Jesus says, one of the evidences of being forgiven is being willing to forgive others. Well, I believed. I accepted Jesus. Well, there must be deeds of repentance. I distinctly remember, I can visualize the girl in the conversation right now when I was a public school teacher talking to this girl. And she said, well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to do everything that the Bible says to do. And the church in the U.S. is full of people who are like that. They, they want to slither like the snake from the fire, but they don't really want change in their life. Sure, I'll do an act. I'll do this. I'll pray a prayer. I'll even go to church. But I want to stay who I am. No one else is going to tell me what to do. You know, many in the United States are like that. Maybe you're like that. You've done a religious deed, but there's no fruit of repentance in your life today. And John warns us, he warns me, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. True repentance brings lasting and real change. In other words, there's fruit of repentance. Well, then how should we change? Well, John responds to three different questioners about the proper Preparation, the last, and this will be very short, the proper preparation, verses 10 through 14. First, there's this general crowd. They come up and they say, what should we do? And John basically says, look, you have two tunics. Give one to someone who has a need. Now here, this is like nothing radical and extremely radical at the same time. It's not radical because you have two. They have zero. It's an easy math problem. You both get one. What's hard? But we all know it's radical because we love our possessions. We have our fist closed around what's, what do we say? Mine. It takes a work of God to make us generous giving people. Likewise, if they have food, see someone who doesn't, they should give it. And the point is, anywhere where you have an excess, be willing to those who have none. It's not just food and clothing. It could be time. Could be money, could be emotions. And so we have to ask, is our home open to others? Is my life really open to others? Do I have a lifestyle of generosity towards others? You see, it's only as we cling more and more to Christ and His salvation that our vice grip lock on our possessions, our money, 
and our time will loosen. In fact, we then say it's not my possessions, my money, my time. We say it's his possessions. It's his money. It's his time. However, he wants me to use them. I am just his steward. You know, that's why we have to realize repentance is not a past tense verb. We should be repenting today, every single day, because we need to repent. Because even I find my grip on my stuff, on my time, on my money, closing, and me wanting to say, mine. And God graciously comes in by His Spirit and pulls the fingers back and says, don't hang on to that. Hang on to me. Realize that stuff was given to you to use for me. And so I must repent today of where I'm clinging to my stuff and instead of saying his stuff. Well, second, the tax collectors come to be baptized. And just the sight of the tax collectors would have brought scorn, thoughts of anger, hatred from the crowd. The Israelites doubly hated the tax collectors. First, they were considered traitors because they were giving money to Rome. Second, they often abused their power and demanded more than they were supposed to get. So they were traitors and cheaters. And the Jews, the Israelites, thus punished them. They excommunicated them from their synagogues. They shamed not only them, but their family, and they wouldn't even allow them to be a witness in court. And the crowd knows. They know what John's going to say. How do they repent? Will you stop being a tax collector? Well, not at all. He says it's not about the position you have. It's how you're practicing that position. It's not that you need to be stopped being a tax collector. You need to be fair and just in that role. Well, third, soldiers come up. They ask what they should do. And again, many people today would go, well, we know Jesus would say you shouldn't be a soldier. Well, he doesn't say that. He basically says, don't use your authority and power to bribe people. Be content with your position. Don't falsely accuse people just because you could get away with it. And be content with what you're paid. Now, isn't it interesting that for every single group, where their repentance begins is with their money and their possessions? Your honoring God is often in the mundane, day in and day out things of life. It's the money that goes through our account. It's the possessions that go in and out of our hands. You know, notice John didn't say, well, if you want to really repent, you've got to move out here with me in the wilderness. You've got to take this extreme lifestyle. You've got to give up your job. You've got to do something else. No, they live faithfully where they're at. And the same is true for us. Our repentance almost always hits where we're already living. So maybe that's where you're living as a mother, where you're living as a child or an employee, that there God is going to open the grip of our hands and say, stop clinging on to that and cling on to me. And so all of this is really calling us, are you prepared to come before God? And John's message, the message of the whole Bible is clear. To be prepared You have to be perfect. But there's good news. Because the Son of God was perfect in your place. He lived and died that whoever would repent of their sins and turn to Him in faith would be forgiven and know salvation. And God in His grace gives us that faith and repentance that is then seen in tangible deeds. You know, in the 1920s in Belfast, Ireland, there was a famous shipbuilder named Harland and Wolf. You may not be familiar with them, but you're probably familiar with one of the most famous ships they ever built, the Titanic. And this shipyard was huge, 
had over 35,000 men working in it. And in the 1920s, a man named W.P. Nicholson came and started preaching. And people started being saved and converted to God. And something fascinating started happening at the Harlan and Wolf shipyard. Tools and iron that had been missing for months started showing up. In fact, so many tools and so much iron was showing up that they erected a whole shed called the Nicholson Shed for the preacher. But soon, that shed was so full that the owners of the company wrote a letter to all the employees and said, look, everyone's forgiven. General amnesty. We cannot take back everything you're bringing. There's too much. You see, there were clear deeds of repentance. Where they were in their life, God was pressing in and saying, yeah, that little tool that no one really cared about, it needs to go back. That, that piece of iron that you were going to resell the next day through the refactured manufacturers, you need to take that back. So much. Because when repentance happens, not just with one, but many, it's called a revival. That God has stirred up the hearts of men and women. You know, that's what we, that's what I need today. And so we should pray that God would so work today in each of us, in our church, in our city, in our nation, that there wouldn't just be, well, yeah, a lot of people did some religious stuff, but there would be changed lives that lead to God's glory and that lead to our good. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, each of us has places where we need to repent. Lord, would we be humbled by you would even the word this morning bring new repentance in our life lord would we not cling on to what is killing us but what would we cling on to what brings us life would we thank you for your mercy that you accept us through your son that you offer a way back lord may we trust in him more and more each day it's in his name we pray amen